And we're going to move through, continue to move through 1 John. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app, I encourage you to open to 1 John now. It's toward the back of the Bible. Three short letters, 2nd and 3rd John, really short. 1 John, uh, not as much, but pretty small book. It's easy to miss as you flip through. Um, but uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. And as I, uh, those of you who were with us from the beginning of this series, you'll remember that I <laughs> explained John doesn't talk about a lot of things. He talks about a few things over and over and over. He talks about a few things in various ways rather than trying to get as much as he can into the letter. Um, and one of the things that is a theme that's replete through this, this letter to people that, whom he knows, he calls them little children, he calls them his beloved. Uh, it's very pastoral and it's very loving. It's a, you can tell as you're reading it that he loves these people. These are people he knows. He wants to encourage them. But he talks about sin a lot. And what's really strange is how oftentimes, especially today, in the culture of sort of American consumerism bleeding into Christianity, the thinking is we want to be loving to people, uh, people that want to come to church. We don't want them to think that uh, we don't love them. So we should talk about sin less. And John's angle, uh, many call him the apostle of love. So he uses the word love so often in his gospel and in, in these letters. His angle is not to ignore sin or to talk about it less, but to address it. And that actually to love his readers is to talk to them about sin, to write to them about sin. Um, because it is serious and because it is necessary. And if he really loves his readers, he wants to talk to them about the thing that, uh, things that are weighty and of great importance to them. I'm reminded of uh, the famous John Owen quote, where he asked his readers if they're mortifying sin, killing it, making it dead. He says, do you make it your daily work to kill sin? He said, be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. All right, so, so sinning, sin shouldn't be a topic we address like once a year. This is, he, John Owen is saying, you need to address this daily. Why? Here's how he closes the quote. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So this is a battle. And the moment you think you're not in a battle, you lose. And one of the aspects of that battle of the Christian faith is fighting against sin and killing it. And what John wants to do in this passage, it's short, we're going to be in 3, 4 through 10. Uh, John is going to give uh, six reasons, we can say. Six reasons to, uh, to explain that sin doesn't belong in the Christian's life. Sin doesn't belong in the Christian's life. And these six reasons are to encourage you. These six reasons are to drill at home or to drive at home. And he gives them sort of in rapid succession here. And so we're going to try to move through it at a, at a, a decent pace. You know, we're not going to be like 30 minutes each point, uh, but kind of move through it at a, at a reasonable pace. But the first one is in verse four. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then he says, sin is lawlessness. 
And so uh, what he's striking home here is the fact that uh, sin is not different than breaking God's rules. That's what sin is. God establishes laws. As you read through the Bible, God explains what he expects of humanity, what he expects of us in terms of behavior and thought and attitudes and actions. There's, there are rules, and sin is simply defying those rules, bending those rules, picking and choosing among those rules, ignoring some of those rules, changing some of those rules, rereading them to fit our agenda. Uh, those are attitudes that betray a, a sinful heart. And so his first reason is, on the one hand, pretty obvious. I mean, it's, it's breaking rules. But he's saying, you're, you're not lawless. If you, if you love God, you delight in his law. If you love God, then you love what he loves. Uh, anytime you see rules or laws or policies at work, rules, policies, laws, they always reflect the rule giver. You can tell a lot about a company that you're, if you're applying for, to work for a company and you see a list of their policies and procedures, what they expect in the workplace, how they expect you to dress, do they expect you to be on time or can you just do work whenever? You're, you can tell a lot about what a company values by their policies and by their procedures. You can tell a lot about what's going on in a state when you read their laws, okay? And so similarly, you can tell a lot about God by his rules. And if you love God, you're gonna love what he loves. And rather than seeing rules as rules, you see what, what lies behind the rules. It's like when you're a little kid and your parents are telling you don't spoil your appetite for dinner, by eating the treats that are in the cabinet and you don't understand that you just want the treat right but eventually you start understanding nutrition you start understanding why it makes sense that you can't live off of pop tarts i mean it makes sense to you later and so what john is doing is think about laws they're not random what god reveals in, in the bible about what he expects they're not random god is not just trying to make life hard they're for you they're good for you and they conform to God's character. So as you conform to God's laws, you conform to who God is. It's not just what he randomly wants. They flow out of his person. So this is why Jesus can say to love God and love neighbor summarizes all of the law. God is love. And there's no darkness in him at all. He's light. He's life. He's love. And so God's laws reflect that. And sin breaks it. Sin is anti-God. And in fact, sin is anti-Christ. And so it is serious. It's something we need to reflect on. So the first reason is sin is lawlessness. The second reason, and the, right in the beginning of verse 5, sin is taken away by Jesus. So not only is sin lawlessness, but sin is taken away by Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus came to do, to take it away. So why, why would a Christian continue living in it? Living in something that Jesus came to remove in verse five, he says, you know that he, of course, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And so Jesus' purpose in coming is to take away sin. He did this through his sacrifice. In other words, you couldn't handle sin on your own. I can't handle sin on my own. So Jesus has to come live that perfect life, that sinless record, right? So that our records can now be swapped. 
if Jesus lived the sinful life, there's no, the swapping wouldn't work. But if Jesus lives a perfect life, then he can take our record on his back and we can get the credit that he earned. And that swap is the substitutionary atonement, right? Uh, a, a word that, that uh, pastors and theologians use to describe that swap, that Jesus takes our penalty on his back and then we get the benefit of freedom from our penalty. And so you think of verses like John 1, 29, where John the Baptist sees Jesus and uh, coming on the scene, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the, the very purpose of Christ coming. Colossians 2, 14, uh, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us. How? By nailing it to the cross. He canceled our debt. Why would you go back to those things that put you in debt? Why would you live like a person who's still carrying that debt? Right? Why would you still live like you're a slave to those things that he took away, that he canceled? Hebrews 9.26, Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So think about this great sacrifice that Jesus made, and sin is sort of being flippant toward that. He made this great sacrifice, but eh, I'm going to sin anyway. And John's saying, you're running against the very purpose of the gospel, the very purpose of what Jesus did, that, that sacrificial substitution on your behalf you're you're pushing against that uh with sin and so sin doesn't belong in the christian's life because it's lawlessness sin doesn't belong in the christian's life because it, it's what jesus came to take away and then his third reason is that sin is not of jesus and this overlaps with that first one of course but gets a little more specific it's not what jesus is it's not what he does it's not what he's like and if you're in Jesus, you shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be what you do. It shouldn't be what you're like. Verse 5 and 6. He says, and in him, in Jesus, there is no sin. But no one who abides in Jesus, no one who remains in Jesus, no one who dwells in Jesus, the different ways of saying it. No one who abides in, in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So if, you, if your life is characterized by sin, then you can say you know him, but the sin shows that you don't. It's interesting here as I'm looking at this verse and he says, then you, you haven't seen him. Now today, we'd all be like, well, yeah, we haven't seen him. I mean, we're almost 2,000 years later, but it, for John's audience, presumably someone could write him back a note and be like, hey, you said we haven't seen him, but I've seen him. And John is saying, you may have seen him with your eyes, but you haven't seen him. Isn't that the great irony of the Christian faith, that we see Jesus without our eyes, and that someone can see Jesus with their eyes back then and still miss him? Obviously, they crucified him, right? He was crucified. People that saw him crucified him. People that saw his miracles demanded more miracles. Prove it. Prove it again. Prove that you're the Messiah. See, they see with their eyes, but they don't see with their hearts. And so it's a, it's a sight of faith. Interestingly, uh, today's service, we're going to close with, with blessed assurance. Um, uh, so someone suggested it, I think, at the end of last week's call. And with blessed assurance, uh, that, that hymn was written by Fanny Crosby. I think towards the end of the uh, 1800s. And she was blind. She wasn't. She was born with an eye infection, 
uh, some quack doctor put some hot stuff on her eyelids to heal the infection. It healed the infection, but it blinded her. And so she lived most of her life blind and she writes this hymn. And there's a line in there about uh, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. And the irony of the Christian life is that uh, someone like Fanny Crosby, who can, I mean, I, obviously we don't know her spiritual life, but just taking her hymn writing, her prolific hymn writing as evidence of her faith, she sees Christ without seeing anything. She's blind, but she can see, and other people around her can see, but they're blind. And so John is saying, uh, this is not what somebody who's in Jesus, who lives in Jesus, belongs to Jesus, who actually truly sees Jesus, doesn't live like they're blind. Blind people sin. They don't know, they don't know any different, but the Christian, the Christian can see. Why would you put a blindfold on and stumble around like other people? You can see now. If you're in Jesus, you can see. If you're walking around like you can't see, you're probably not in Jesus. So live like you live in Christ. So sin is lawlessness. Second, sin is taken away by Jesus. Third, sin is not of Jesus. And number four, we'll find in verse seven, sin is the opposite of what the righteous do. I mean, John, John wouldn't be your typical scholar. He, he doesn't put things... In complicated terms, <laughs> sin is opposite of righteousness. People who are Christian are righteous people. Righteous people don't do the opposite of righteousness. They do righteousness. That means they don't sin. You will see that in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Think about the fact that he's putting together the being of Christianity with the doing of Christianity. If you are righteous, if that's what you are, that's the being, then what you do follows from what you are. So behavior follows from belief or being. So who you are makes what you do. You are what you practice, in other words. You can talk the talk, but if you don't walk the walk, you're not it. And so he's saying, but, but you are it. That means you don't, you don't do that. What do you do? You do righteousness. You do righteous things. And this is where John is reminded of deceivers. He, he, he puts in this reminder. You remember as we we're moving through this book, these particular Christians were especially dealing with false teachers who tried to get them to believe false things about God, about the Bible. and uh, the real believers sort of resisted it, and the, the false teachers ended up leaving because no one was buying the gospel they were peddling. And like anybody else, if no one's buying what you're peddling, you move on to, to get traction somewhere else. And so in the wake of that, John is writing them, and you can tell as he's writing this that this is one of those sticking points. We don't know exactly what those false teachers were saying, but they might have been saying some things that we still hear today. Like, God wants you to be happy. I mean, I, I, I know of, uh, a, a person who seemed like a Christian, uh, acted like a Christian, served church like a Christian, uh, sang songs in church like a Christian, uh, studied the Bible like a Christian. But then one day, uh, this person grew sat dissatisfied with their spouse and left left the marriage, divorced, uh, 
and went away with a lover. And the reason was this, God wants me to be happy. See, that, that bad theology, right? Not getting right what God had said, not getting God's laws right, not getting God's rules right, but redefining those rules because of what you think God is doing. And so he's saying, don't let people deceive you with things that sound right. Hey, God is loving. God wants to play ball. How, how about uh, God is not legalistic. If you tell somebody, hey, I went, I went on this Zoom call, this church was talking about sin, and they go, sin? Uh, that sounds like a legalistic church. Well, no, we're not a legalistic church. We read the Bible and preach what it says. Um, but those things, God wants me to be happy. God is not a legalistic God. Jesus is not legalistic. Those are different ways of deceiving you. Uh, deceit doesn't come you know, it, most false teachers aren't going to come to you and say, hey, what you really should be doing is murdering people. They're not going to come up to you and say, hey, adultery is great. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, look at your marriage. You're not happy. It leads to your depression. Wouldn't you be a better person if you were just in a better marriage? You've given this person a chance. You've given this person time and they won't change or they're changing really slow. God doesn't want you stuck in that. See, they're not going to come up to you and say, go commit adultery. They're going to start like that. But if you've got it in your mind, adultery is sin. God doesn't love divorce. He hates divorce. If that's in your mind, then you go, okay, I want to live the way God calls me to live, even when it's hard. And when people come around you to, dece to deceive you, you can hear the shepherd's voice rather than the voice of the wolves. And so he's, he's using these reasons to protect the flock to love on them and make sure that they walk the way they're supposed to walk. So sin is lawlessness. Sin is taken away by Jesus. Sin is not of Jesus. Sin is the opposite of what the righteous do. And then reason number five uh, is sort of the opposite of reason number three, which was sin is not of Jesus. Reason number five is sin is of the devil. You see that? In verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so you see uh, the word devil there repeated. It's stated three times. And uh, again, we don't believe that there is a demon behind every single bush uh, that there's a demon on the Zoom call, if there's a technological glitch, it must have been a demon. I mean, it could have been. But John is not trying to squeeze demonic activity into every nook and cranny. He's saying every sinful activity is demonic. That doesn't mean you were possessed when you did it. That doesn't mean every action of sin is prompted by the activity, specific activity of the devil. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. But he's saying sin is characteristic of the devil. And if sin is characteristic of your life, guess who you're like? You know, it's easy to think of pentagrams as satanic. It's, it's easy to, you know, dislike uh, certain costumes on Halloween because they seem demonic, right? And a lot of them are. It's, you know, satanic worship is a thing. Uh, but so is lying. So is covetousness. Those giving into lust. 
right? The, these are these are demonic, not because you're possessed if you do them, but because they are characteristic of the devil who has been sinning from the beginning. He's always been sinning, and he's always been trying to get us to sin, and that has to do with the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to undo the works of the devil, to break them, right? To uh, free us from the works of the devil. And so John is saying, if sin is the basic characteristic of the devil, don't be devilish. Be Christian, Christ-like. Be a Jesus follower and live into what he has freed you from. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be, that doesn't have to characterize your life. It does for the devil. It does for people that don't have Christ. They're enslaved. But if you abide in Christ, Jesus came to take away sin and undo the works of the devil. Live like that's true. And so uh, there are varying degrees of sin. Lying and covetousness may not be on the same level as murder or some other heinous, uh, deeply perverted sin. But even though they're not of the same degree, they're of the same pedigree. It still smacks of Satan. That's something to consider. Uh, our temptation is to belittle certain sins. Eh, it's an infraction. We put sins in categories, felonies, misdemeanors, slap on the hand, uh, and they are different in consequence and weightiness, but they're not different in uh, their reflection of the character of the devil. That's evil, and it's weighty. Reason number six, and we'll just spend a little bit more on this one because uh, it raises a difficult question. Sin is lawlessness, number one. Number two, sin is taken away by Jesus from verse five. Uh, and then five to six, the third reason, sin is not of Jesus. The fourth reason, sin is the opposite of what the righteous do from verse seven. Reason number five, sin is of the devil from verse eight. And then from verse nine, reason number six, sin is not what we're re reborn for. Sin is not what we are reborn to do. Check out verse 9. No one born of God, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him or her, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And so he's talking about, you see the word born twice? You see the word seed there. God has implanted a seed to, to rebirth you. And if you've been reborn, again, uh, what theologians call regeneration, you've been regenerated by God. It's a new life. You're a new creation, as Paul puts it. And if you've been reborn, you're a different person. I mean, you're the same person, but there's something has happened inside of you that you're, you're born again. Someone that was dead is now alive. That's what baptism is. That's what baptism represents. And so reborn people don't live like the people that they were before they were born. You're, you're new. 
this isn't uh like just you you got a name change this is a life change is john's point you're not reborn because your name is put on a baptism certificate and put in a church drawer somewhere you're reborn when your life shows that you're different and you live like it and you do righteous things and you don't uh, abide in sinfulness now he uses strong wording right he says no one no, no one born of god makes a practice of sinning i mean can you think of christians uh that sin the first person you might think of is yourself <laughs> that's the first person i think of but he but he uses strong language no one does it and then he says no uh and then he says cannot no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. But the Christian can't. Now, John is pretty black and white, so he's saying if, if, you, if a Christian can't keep on sinning, and you have somebody that does keep on sinning, guess what they're not? A Christian can't do that, so it must not be a Christian. We invent all these other categories of the carnal Christian, the really laggy Christian, the Christian where it hasn't kicked in yet, the Christian that hasn't experienced a second blessing yet. None of that stuff is here. Someone in Christ cannot keep sinning. Someone keeps sinning, they're not in Christ. And so the strong wording there has led to lots of different, uh, less than helpful interpretations. Some believe that John, and I don't waste your time with the six or seven different explanations of this. A lot of them are really weak, but probably one of the more popular ones is a, a, some version or another of Christian perfectionism. That what John is saying is if a Christian commits a sin, then they're not saved. Now, some will say they just got unsaved and they need to get saved again every single time they sin. That's problematic, isn't it? We don't even know half the time that we sin. We're still growing in our ability to even discern when we're sinning. So we don't even know when to confess and get saved again. What does that even mean? Do we keep getting baptized over and over again? That sort of, that leads to a sort of spiritual paranoia where no one ever really knows if they're saved, right? And just before you get uh, T-boned by that tractor trailer, uh, your last thought wasn't a very righteous one. Now what? Is that what John is saying? This letter of assurance? That would just leave zero assurance. I don't think that's what he's saying, but it sounds like what he's saying. Christians cannot keep sinning, right? Christians don't do this. You don't do that if you're reborn. Some have thought that uh, their version of Christian perfectionism is that you eventually grow into a place where you don't commit intentional sins. This would represent sort of John Wesley's stance uh, if, if you're familiar with uh, John Wesley, um, Christian, his version of Christian perfectionism would match a little bit more of this position where, yeah, Christians sin accidentally. Oops, I messed up. But you're, you're, a Christian doesn't knowingly commit an act of sin. Right? And so that's that version of that kind of explanation of the text. I just want to uh, push back against that because. Uh, you may have people in your life that will kind of try to move you in that direction. And uh, the first is, if you look back at chapter one, if you can flip just back to chapter one really quickly, you'll remember when we covered this passage in verse eight, 
What does he say about people who claim to have no sin? They deceive themselves. The truth is not in them. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make them a liar. So who of us can say we haven't sinned? Okay. They would push back against that and say that's before the Christian life. You know, before you were reborn, you can't lie and say you didn't sin. But once you confess Christ and start the Christian life from that point forward, you shouldn't be sinning intentionally. The problem with that distinction is that sin is always intentional. I mean, you, you may not have known the gravity of it. You may not have known the weight of it. But you do it on purpose. It's an action. Sin doesn't fall on top of you, right? Like a, you're walking under a tree and some acorn falls out of it. Oops, sin landed on me. No, you did sin. That's why sin makes one guilty. And so it's impossible to distinguish between accidental sins and intentional sins when even the accidental ones, you did it because you're selfish. That's why you did it. So even if you do something in a moment of anger, even if you did something without premeditation, you did it because your heart was already predisposed to do it. You didn't plan it by writing it down in a journal, but your heart planned it because that part of you wasn't fixed yet. You weren't prepared for that situation to act in a holy way. And so you acted in your default way, which is sinful. I'm not describing you in particular. I'm describing a universal experience. And so we can think of common experience if, if these interpretations were correct, none of us would be Christian because we all commit intentional sins. We all commit, uh, uh, even think things that we would rather us not think. And we struggle with it and we're grieved by it, but we still do them. Hopefully we do them less as we mature. Hopefully we do them less as we grow. And as we grow, you conquer one sin and realize there's another sin lurking you weren't even aware of because this sin was this huge monster, you finally killed it, and now there's just like smaller goblins, right, running around still uh, in your life, and you've got to kill those too. Um, and so it's a constant process, and you can just look around you by experience and realize that can't be what John means, because his goal is to assure us, and that would leave us zero assurance, because none of us would be saved. Think of the Lord's Prayer. The disciples asked him to teach, him how, teach them how to pray. And how does he teach them how to pray? To confess sin. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Notice the language there. Forgive us as we continue forgiving other people. So God's forgiveness is a continual action, and our forgiving other people are continual. People are always going to trespass against you. And your ability to forgive trespasses is constant proof of the constant forgiveness you receive from God. So why would Jesus teach disciples to pray prayers of confession if confession only belongs in the first prayer you pray? And after that first prayer, you don't sin anymore. You've been born of God now. No, the person born of God still sins. That's why they need to confess. That's why Jesus taught them to pray that way. Think about Matthew 18. When, when, when uh, Jesus talks about dealing with someone who has offended you, someone in the church who's caused you harm, offended you, uh, hurt you in some way, uh, and they're wrong, 
and you approach this person one-on-one. -on -one. You don't blast it first. You don't immediately call the elders. You don't skip steps here. You go one-on-one. -on -one. Is it scary to confront? Yes. Buck up. This is Matthew 18. What you're supposed to do when someone offends you is confront them about it, not bring witnesses, not gang up on them by talking to other people about them, not ignoring them, not shoving it in a closet back there and like, let's just let bygones be bygones. That is the world's way. God gives us by his spirit the courage to do what's right. And what's right in that situation is to confront them. Now, what does Jesus say happens if you confront that person about their sin and they repent? He says, you've won your brother, not they've become a brother. What does that mean? Brother sin. Sister sin. It's not going to take long for you to hang out with us at CFC to realize we are sinners. Uh, one or more of us is going to disappoint you, maybe even hurt you, maybe say something really dumb. Maybe we didn't even plan it like i talked about before but we're all we all operate out of our weaknesses at times and you what what i encourage you to do is give that person the opportunity to prove that they're in christ don't start making up in your head they're not going to change that person is just a jerk if i confront them they're not going to repent then i got to call witnesses and then it's going to be a big church thing if it's a big church thing let it be a big church thing but give them the opportunity to be one in other words, give them the opportunity to prove that they're really a brother or really a sister. Because if they are, they'll repent. That's Jesus' point. A real Christian repents. Not a real Christian never needs to repent. He doesn't say, if somebody offended you, just straight kick them out of the church. No, there's a process. And you're trying to get this person to recognize, yeah, this is wrong. I should repent. Because a real Christian repents. At the end of that process, you confronted that person. They didn't repent. Witnesses came. We saw that, man. This person isn't crazy. You did that action. You're wrong. Two, three witnesses confirm that this sin is there, and the person still doesn't repent. They take it to the church. The church confronts the person. This is sin in your life, brother. You need to repent. No, I'm not repenting. Well, then you're not a brother. So it is not the presence of sin that makes someone not a Christian. It's the refusal to repent of it that shows someone is not a Christian. And that's a big difference. Uh, you can think of uh, uh, in, in uh, Galatians chapter 2, a really interesting passage there where Paul has no problem calling out Peter for sin. Paul says, I, I had to confront Peter and Barnabas too. Barnabas joined uh, Peter, that son of encouragement, right? Joined Peter in sin. And it was so obvious to everybody, he just stood there condemned when I said it. And I rebuked him to his face. Now, was Paul saying Peter was never saved? All the stuff that Peter did early in Acts wasn't real. He just did it out of uh, fleshly motives. He's not talking about the fact that he wasn't saved. Christians need to be rebuked. This is why Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Why? Because it rebukes and it reproves and it corrects Christians. Well, why would a Christian need to be reproved, rebuked, or corrected? Because... We still sin. That's why. Uh, I can go on and on. Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas get into a sharp dispute. Somebody's probably sinful there. Mark abandoned them on their missions trip. <laughs> John Mark, supposedly the one who wrote the gospel, he started out on a mission trip and he bailed on them. 
Paul was mad at him. He's like, I don't want Mark accompanying us anymore on mission trip. Forget this guy. And Barnabas is like, no, nah, you got to give him another chance. Paul says no. And they had to split up. They couldn't even continue their missionary work together. Paul and Barnabas. The Christian life is messy. It's complex. And there's really no room for the belief that once you become a Christian, you don't sin anymore. Once you become a Christian, sin just goes poof and is gone. Or as soon as you sin, you realize you never really were a Christian. Um, that's not John's angle here. Look at the text again. Depending on your translation, it might be worded a little differently, but you're going to see some kind of wording like the following. In verse 9, or let's back up to verse 6. Look at the language of verse 6. No one who abides in him continues to sin doesn't say sin, keeps on sinning. Actually, he says that twice in that verse, doesn't he? And look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning. You see how that's different than whoever sins, whoever commits a sin. This It's different. He's saying the person who continues in it. The person who makes a practice of it, the person who does, the literal translation would be the person who does sinning. You can see that language again in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, or no one born of God does sinning. And then he says, uh, he cannot keep on sinning. He cannot continue sinning. So here's how I think John means what he says. Uh, John is talking about persistence in sin. And he's talking about insistence. Is that even a word? I don't even know. To be insistent, right? Uh, it's not just that you committed a sin. Back to Matthew 18, this person sinned. As soon as you're confronted about sin, you should repent. But it's, it's when you don't repent of it, you're not grieved by it. You dig your heels in it. Everyone else is telling you this is going to destroy your life. People are pointing to Scripture and showing you this is not what God wants for you. No, God wants me to be happy. But God says right here, don't tell me what the Bible, don't preach at me. I've been in the Bible longer than you. I've taught Sunday school. I know what I'm doing. See, that, that kind of reaction shows that somebody is not abiding in Christ. It's not the fact that they committed a sin. It's insisting on the sin. It's persisting in the sin and not the inability to be corralled by the church into righteousness. That's what John is talking about. And so that's not to say, so don't worry about it. You sin, I sin, we all sin. You know, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Of course it's a big deal. He's giving us six reasons why we need to attack this thing, why we need to kill this thing, why we need to grow up. And even though we will never be on this side of life sinless, we should be always about the goal of sinning less. It's not about perfection. It's about pursuit. It's about progress. It's running the race by laying aside those things that beset you, entangle you, and weigh you down to run the race better. That doesn't mean the race is over. It's still a struggle and it's still a fight. 
but you grow in your strength and you grow in your ability to do the things that are righteous things to do. Here's how he concludes the whole thing in verse 10. He says, by this, by what? Well, all that I've been laying out to you, these six reasons I gave you, the difference between sin and righteousness, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Righteousness looks like something. We've covered that before. It looks like actual loving people. Uh, Christianity, that regeneration, it does things. You do things. You, you love. Love takes action, right? And you love the people that are around you. It's evident. So it's not just the not sinning, but it's the doing of the righteousness. And righteousness isn't some ethereal, ethereal like sense of holiness. It's, it's on the ground, boots on the ground, rubber meets the road, loving people, even when they don't deserve to be loved, even when they're acting unlovable, even your enemies, as Jesus put it. If you're going to be perfect as the heavenly father, as your heavenly father is perfect, you'll love even your enemies. And so it is evident. What is the point of John writing all of this? The point of John, that John's point is not to keep you out. It's not to show you, oh, you're sinning, you're out. He's writing to people who are in and encouraging them. How do you know you're in? How do you know you're a believer? You should be able to know. Uh, I bought this as a giveaway whenever we get back together in person. When we do giveaways again, I'll, I'll have this up. But uh, by Mike McKinley, it's called, Am I Really a Christian? It's, it's not long. I mean, you shouldn't take a thousand pages to discern whether you're a Christian or not. But how can, a, how can someone write a book like that? You'll hear people say, well, God is the judge. I can't ever judge with whether someone's a Christian or not. I don't know. John said it's evident. Now, I may not be able to sit down with someone over a cup of coffee and immediately be able to tell they're a Christian. But if you spend time with somebody, if you hang out with somebody, if you're doing church together with somebody, over time, you can tell the people that don't really love God's word, the people that don't really uh, show up when it hurts, the people that only love when it's convenient, the people that only love people that love them first. Everyone else stays out of the clique. Over time, you can see patterns that evidence that someone, rather than practicing righteousness, actually just practices cleaned up versions of sin. And of course, it's the the job of the church to discern that. But what he's calling for is not to submit an application to the elders and ask them to tell you if you're a Christian, which I don't think is a bad idea. That's part of what membership is about. But if, if, if a Christian doesn't care, who else, you know, if a Christian thinks, I don't care who else thinks I'm a Christian, I just know that I am. That's probably a problem. The, the Christian is a community of faith. But, but John's point here is he's saying, you should be able to tell that you are a Christian by the way you live your life. These six reasons I'm giving you about the problem of sin and what sin is like and what sin does, you should, you should, you live a life that is actively moving away from that and growing into righteousness. And so he wants to assure you uh, that you're in. If you're not in, John's words also serve as an implicit warning. 
I mean, I mean, as he describes what it looks like when you're in, if you're listening to that and you're realizing you're out, well, it is a warning and it is an invitation. This isn't an, an exclusive club. Those of us who are in are in because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and us clinging to that by faith. We didn't earn ourselves in. So what does it take to be in? Confess Christ. You confess Christ. You ask him for forgiveness. You ask God that he would take Christ's sacrifice and apply it to you, that you could be atoned, that you can be covered, in other words, uh, that your sin can be taken away, that your debt can be canceled, and so that you can be regenerated, reborn. You pray that. You ask him for it. And then the next day should look a little different. And the next day should look a little more different as you start to grow and your appetite for sin decreases and your appetite for righteous things increase. And so for those of you who may not be believers, I encourage you to pray a prayer like that, to ask the Lord to save you uh, by the work of Jesus Christ. Those of you who are in, John wants you to be encouraged and he wants you to continue to grow and to continue to protect yourself against lies, deceitful things that would convince you that sin is not that bad. He wants to give you the reasons you need to equip you to understand sin for exactly what it is and to hate it uh, and to want to stop and to want to grow and to not persist in it and to not continue in it and not make a practice of it. And we all need God's grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for the work you've done on our behalf in Jesus Christ that we don't have to uh, conquer sin on our own, but that Jesus has done something miraculous on Calvary, on the cross, taking sin and what sin earns us, which is death, and he takes it on himself so that we can have life, so that we can have a kind of life, an abundant one, one that presses into righteousness and makes a practice of righteousness, that we would be about doing righteousness rather than our old selves, which were about doing sin and continuing in it. God, give us the humility, the grace to respond to being called out for sin, whether we're reading scripture and, wow, we realize we're doing something wrong, or a friend, a neighbor, a spouse, a child even, calls out some hypocrisy, some inconsistency, something that's incongruent with the nature of Christ in our lives. Give us the humility to, to love the rebuke and hate the sin rather than protect the sin and hate the rebuke. Help us to accept those wounds of a friend. Help us to accept uh, the discipline of the church even. Help us to be corralled by a community that loves Christ and help us to point out sin in each other out of love and not out of any other ulterior motive. God, as a church, help us to grow in maturity. Help us to look back and see that we're growing, see that we're different. Help us to hear reports from our spouses, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our children, our parents, that we're different, we're doing better, that we're growing, that we're more mature than we were before. And as we see those evidences, as we see the fruit of the regeneration in our lives, God, help us to be encouraged 
and cling to that assurance, which indeed is a blessing to our souls. As we close in this song, Father, would you massage those truths into our hearts so that we leave here not under a weight of condemnation, but enjoying the freedom that you've given us to live righteously, develop our taste and love and delight for those things that are of you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.